today the man born blind. I would just like to encourage you before we begin our message to be careful in choosing all of your Christmas cards, if you still have that to do, that you read the messages carefully before you send them. I read of a lady this week who bought 50 cards. She liked the way the card looked, but she didn't read the message inside. And she sent 49 of them. She dressed them, sealed them up, and mailed them. She had them in the mail when the day before Christmas she decided she would look at the one card she had left, and to her absolute astonishment, she found this message on the inside of that one unmailed card. This card is just to say, my special gift to you is on its way. Pays to read. That's really what the prophets said hundreds of years ago. God said, my special gift to you is on its way. And we celebrate that great event this month in many, many ways. One is through this marvelous presentation called the Singing Christmas Tree. Other ways through gatherings and events that are all delineated in your bulletin, and I encourage you to follow through on all of it, be a part of it, make this month count for God. Now, for the next 30 minutes, I ask your undivided attention. I, I note as I look around that uh, few folk have been visiting with their neighbor, and I know it's important to get acquainted uh, even up there in the corner of the balcony, but uh, from here on, I ask you pay attention to the Word of God throughout this entire auditorium. You not move unless it's an absolute emergency because people are here, some of them between heaven and hell, some of them between despair and hope, many of them searching for answers to life's greatest problem. And we don't want to deter them in their quest for the answer. The teaching of Jesus in John chapter 9 had brought the religious leaders to the point of picking up stones to kill him, take out his life. That's where we are in the deliberation of John's gospel. But Jesus though they hated him and were going to kill him, escaped out of their midst. The Bible tells us that as he passed by, he saw a man who was born blind. He had said in the previous chapter in the 12th verse, I am the light of the world, and it is as though now in chapter 9 he proceeds to demonstrate it. What we need to believe today, almost 2,000 years removed from that event, is that Jesus is still giving physical light to blinded eyes and spiritual light to those who are in the darkness of sin. Because he is. Just two weeks ago, here at the prayer time at the front, one of the elders praying for a lady not knowing until that moment what her need was, she suddenly cried out, I can see. And to our joy, we found out she was to have surgery on her eyes in just a few days, but through 
the ministry of the elders and the prayer of faith, the Lord opened those eyes and she saw. So this ought not to be a thought of thing uncommon. He is still giving light to blinded eyes and spiritual light to those in the darkness of sin. Now what I have come to talk to you about today is first of all how to prepare for your miracle. How Jesus works. And it is such a vital lesson that I hope you will all pick it up and live by it the rest of your life. Jesus loved the world, that we know. Jesus cared about men, that we know. John 3 tells us God so loved the world that he gave. And Jesus so loved us that he was willing to come and give his life a ransom for many. And as Jesus moved about in his ministry, he saw people with need, though his disciples did not notice them. And this is one of those cases. The disciples did not even notice this man who was blind. But Jesus did because he loves man. He cares about man. He reaches out to man. These disciples were like people I see often today who pass by people in need. We can come into a service like this. We can be standing by people who raise their hand for prayer and not really care, not really reach out to them and minister to them, not really love them, not put ourselves in their shoes, not be empathetic toward them. And that's one of the tragedies of life, that we are so wrapped up in number one that we don't see number two and three and four and on down the line. If the Lord were to pull the curtain back and let you see the needs of people sitting in the same role you're in today, you might be amazed at their hurts and amazed at how they're reaching out for somebody to touch them and to care about them. But we're too busy. We're too wrapped up in our own selves and in our own needs and our own families and in our own uh, diet of things in life that we don't really care and we don't really touch. But Jesus cared and Jesus reached out. This was not just another beggar to Jesus. Though he was to the disciples that were with him. People taken up with their own needs and their own desires unable to see him. I thought of that when reading the newspaper and this kind of thing happens often where a babysitter in charge with the uh, care of little ones in a home so taken up by a television program, not paying attention to what they're there to do. We read of a child drowning in a bathtub or getting a hold of matches or a candle and burning the house up and life lost because of the lack of concern and notice by the person who is to be there to take care of things. Well, that's part of the scene in John 9 
The disciples did not see this man in his need, but Jesus saw a body to be healed, and Jesus saw a soul to be saved. How we need to begin seeing things as Jesus sees them. That's one of my great desires for this great fellowship of believers, that we really reach out to care for one another. We have agape groups that meet, and everybody ought to be in an agape group that they might reach out and touch somebody else and relate to other people in these smaller settings that we call agape groups. Well, in this setting that I've just explained to you comes a question. Who did sin, this man or his parents? Now, you need to understand some of the background of that time to understand that question. You'll note that these people standing around called Jesus rabbi, teacher. The rabbis of Jesus' day taught that each sickness was the result of some specific sin. Whatever the sickness was, it was because of sin in that person or maybe the person's parents. Some thought that a child might sin in its mother's womb and after birth. There would be a malady in that person's life because of sin in the womb of the mother. Well, Jesus sought to answer that question by not entering into theological debate with them, not to get involved in nitpicking and splitting of hairs. He might have pointed out that when parents are infected with certain diseases, their children may be born blind or with some other malady. Or he could have pointed out from Ezekiel 18.20 that God judges people because of their own sins, not the sins of their parents. But he did not argue. And I don't know how many times you may have read this story and not seen what I'm about to tell you. The answer of Jesus was different than what probably would have been the answer of most. He did not give a theological response because he wanted the disciples to see that it is more important to remove evil than it is to explain its origin. And I declare to you today, there are people everywhere wanting to get involved in theological debate about where this came from or that came from. But I am here to tell you today that it is better to relieve suffering than it is to speculate where it comes from. And that's what Jesus did in this story. He did not gather in a classroom and open up volumes of books and say, this is why this man is blind. What Jesus did was to move past 
the theology to the heart of his need and clear up the problem of his need. Which leads me to say to all of you today what is important and necessary in this service and in any service that we ever have is not for us to come together to try to find out why we're sick, why we live in sin, why we do the things we do or don't do the things we ought to do, but to come to find the one who can remove the problem, eradicate the sin, eradicate the sickness, and cause us to walk out of here in a little while whole because we met the who, not the what. And they missed it. They had in their presence the life giver and didn't realize it. They wanted to know why he was born blind. Flying back yesterday with my wife early morning from Springfield, Missouri, I was reading a book and after a while I looked up and the man in front of me had a newspaper open quite high so I could read some of it and the man across the aisle had the same newspaper and on the same page was reading and I saw an article. I adjusted my glasses so I could get as much of it as possible and I was intrigued by what that article was saying. It had to do with a murderer who had just been executed and that they had removed the man's brain and were evaluating this man's brain as to why he was the way he was before he was executed. And as I sat there in my seat looking at those newspapers in front and across the aisle, it was as though the Holy Spirit just came down in my mind and in my spirit, and I wanted to stand in the aisle of that plane and shout, it's not his brain you need to evaluate. It's not his brain you need to take apart. It's his heart. It's what made him do what he did. He didn't know the who who could change and eradicate and make anew the sin and the ungodliness of his being. It's beyond the brain. It's down into the heart of man. And these disciples and all of these people standing around hadn't seen what we need to see in this service today. Job's comforters are always around us. Concern over their sick friend. No. Only what caused his sickness. Only what caused his boils. Only what caused his family to be slain and his animals to be plundered. They're all around us today. But church, hear me this morning. The heart of God is crying out that we might get concerned over the remedy, that we might introduce people to the remedy, that we might show them the Lamb of God that taketh away and not try to get in dialogue as to what have you done that has brought this thing about. I'm not here today concerned with what brought about 
the sin in your life, what brought about the guilt that you're experiencing. I'm not here concerned today with what brought the sickness or the disease as much as I am concerned about you meeting my friend Jesus Christ who I know with a spoken word or a touch of his hand can eradicate the sin, can remove the guilt, can touch the sickness, can remove the disease, and you can walk out of this place in a few minutes whole because he is the answer who cares about where it came from when you find the solution to it. Matthew 7, 1 to 5 says, Judge not that ye be not judged. We have no real means of judging. We cannot tell whether a sickness is due to sin or not, as in the case of this blind man. We have enough to do judging ourselves without judging others. I've got a full-time job looking after my own heart let alone trying to figure out why you're like you are. I've just come to tell you I have a friend. <laughs> I have a friend. His name is Jesus Christ. And I've never met anybody who met my friend that didn't go away changed. Who didn't go away healed and helped and lifted and made better by his presence. For too many years, churches in some parts of the world have dealt with the why of sin and suffering rather than with the how of deliverance. God's emphasis for us today is on the how of deliverance. If you're sick, call for the elders of the church. If the sickness is caused by sin, let's confess that sin. But if our suffering is due to adversity and circumstances outside ourselves, then let us avail ourselves of his grace and power that we might claim deliverance and be more than conquerors through him that loved us. That's the heart of the gospel story. That's the story of John 9. Who sinned? Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. That you would be able to meet me in a powerful personal way. And you're about to do that, is what he was saying to the crowd. Notice further with me in verse 4, Jesus said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, the night is coming when no man can work. What does that mean? We have used that scripture often in terms of reaching the world. We must work now before night comes. And that's a good application. But in keeping with the meaning of the text, this is the meaning. The reason why Jesus said this. Some works must be done at the proper time. That's what he was saying. If there is somebody that is sick, visit them now. If there's somebody blind, speak to the blindness now. If you've got a problem with somebody and there's division, clear it up now. You don't wait. You do it while there is time to do it. 
how often I have ministered to people in funerals who didn't go to the rest home, who didn't go to the hospital, who didn't care about the loved one while they were alive. Put it off. Only now to stand at a casket broken, weeping, grieving, because there was something left undone, a hurt that was not healed, a fence that was not mended, and it's too late. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're listening to the voice of the preacher today, now is the time. This is the day. This is the moment. This is the hour. There's no time like now. That's what Jesus is saying. Take care of it now. You don't know if you'll ever have it tomorrow. Jesus came to the end of his ministry and was able to say, Father, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Paul sat in a prison knowing his head was going to be severed from his body. And in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, he said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Some of you work for the telephone company. Great rolls of telephone wire may be seen by the side of the road, ready to be strung on poles, but there's no power in the wire. Only when the wire is in place and the connections made at both ends does the wire become a means through which the power flows. The presence of Christ within us takes in everything. You don't need necessarily to jump up and down and shout with a loud voice, nor do necessarily you need to sit quietly, reverently for fear you're going to disturb God. If you have the presence of Jesus within you, all kinds of emotions are normal and in place and ordinary and right. It's just that he deals with us as individuals, doesn't he? But his desire is to come and live within us. And when he comes to live within us, in response to our faith, we have everything that heaven has. We have everything there is in the storehouse of God. In Jesus Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. When you have Jesus, you have everything. You have healing. You have salvation. You have the fullness of his spirit. You have the promise of his coming. You have a daily friend, one who sticks closer than a brother. What you need to do is get hooked up with Jesus. And when you have Jesus, you have everything you need. A captain in the New York Police Department wrote Norman Vincent Peale a letter. He said, Dr. Peale, tell your listeners this. There is nothing outside of Jesus Christ that means anything. There's nothing outside of Jesus Christ that a person needs. He said, I was on the street the other day, and there was a street preacher preaching. So I kind of saddled up to the crowd and stood there listening. And when I was aware suddenly of a tall, good-looking black man standing next to me, well-dressed, and he was listening to every word, and finally I felt compelled to say to him, do you know Jesus Christ? Oh, no, he said, but I'd like to. I'd like to believe, but I, I just don't know how to believe. Oh, he said, it's simple. You just say, Jesus Christ, come into my life. Oh, he said, but if I say it, will he come in? Yes, he'll come in. That's where faith comes in. He's a man of his word. You ask him to come in. 
And he said, as I stood there, that black man said, Jesus, come in, I receive you. And he said, in that moment, like a flash of lightning, that young man discovered that in Christ is the fullness of God, that all of Jesus Christ was within him. He said, I saw him changed, standing there on the street. He said, tell all of your listeners that when you have Jesus Christ, you have everything you so Dr. Peel said, I'm telling you. Well, I'm telling you too. When you have Jesus Christ, you have everything. Why do you think you've got to go to some far off place to find an answer to your need? Jesus is as much in this room right now as he was ever in an Oral Roberts tent meeting. He is as much in this room right now as he was in any Catherine Kuhlman crusade ever conducted. And I love those people and their ministries. But Jesus said, if two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Can you have any more than that? Absolutely not. Jesus Christ is as much here right now as he is down in Charlotte, North Carolina, or back in Virginia with the CBN, or down in Southern California with TBN. Jesus Christ is here right now to fill you with himself. All he's waiting is for you to respond. And that brings us to the last part of the story. Jesus spit in the ground, got a ball of clay, and stuck it in his eye. And that's where we got the statement, here's mud in your eye. Now the theologians get together on that passage and they say, yuck, how uncouth. My grandson would say, that's gross. Why did Jesus spit in the ground, on the ground and put mud in this man's eye? Well, Jesus deals with us all according to our need. When I quit in a few minutes, some of you maybe ought to jump up and shout. Some of the rest of you ought to maybe just sit still and be quiet. I don't know. I just know this, that I trust him. And whatever he's been saying to you and is saying to you and will say to you in a few minutes, do it. Jesus did not heal the man with the mud in the eye. He said to the man, and don't miss this, he said, now go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Why did he say that? Because he had to express his faith. That's why we say, get up out of your seat and come to this altar and publicly confess Christ. That is why we say, get up and come for the prayers of the elders. That's why we sometimes say, lift up your hands and glorify God, though you may not feel like it. It's an act of faith. I've been to the Pool of Siloam, and it's not really all that exciting. It's just a dinky little dumpy place. It isn't even all that clean. 
I've been there a number of times, and I got down on my knees once there by the pool of Siloam just to kind of feel like this blind beggar. I put my hand in the water, and I rubbed it in my eyes. People looking at me like I was sick. Can you imagine how he must have felt? He's walking around and trying to find the pool of Siloam with his mud in his eye. And when he gets there, he almost falls in the pool trying to get just the right distance in order to get the water and rub it in his eye. Can you imagine how he must have felt with people all over watching him? Ah, just like you're feeling now as God is dealing with your heart and the guilt and all of the things that kind of build up in us and you're afraid that I'm going to ask you to come forward and I will. And you're getting all these things. How can I do that? Simply get up and walk. Just like I'm doing. That's how you do it. You just put a foot out there in front of you. The next one follows right along behind. It's amazing how that works. One follows the other. It just works that way. One after the other. That's how he did it. And that's how we find our sight. We just do what he says to do. Well, there he was, down on his knees, getting water, rubbing it in his eyes. And can you imagine? It's like you women with the mascara and you start crying in church. It's running all over you and you look hopelessly in need. Here's this mud running down his cheeks, onto his lips, onto his robe. He looks a sight. But when he stands up and he opens his eyes, for the first time in his life, he saw the light of day. <laughs> then the theologians go to work. It isn't the beggar. Couldn't be him. No, no. One of them says, got all these degrees, all of these certificates on his wall. No, it just looks like him. It's not him. Not him. Couldn't be him. So they go to him and ask, I love it. Are you he that sat begging? Yeah, he said, I'm. Well, how in the world it is that you're seeing? They didn't like it that he was able to see. Oh. Well, he said, this man by the name of Jesus put mud in my eye told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and I came, I love that line, I came seeing. It's my prayer that you'll go out of here to restaurants and to your home saying, I went in blind, but I went out seeing. I went to church today with such a burden that I feel like I could jump over a wall and run through a troop because I met this one called Jesus what the world needs. Then they got into further deliberation. Oh, it's a funny story, isn't it? <laughs> they get to talking. 
Some said others, he's like him. But he said, I am he. <laughs> it's me. Therefore they said, how were your eyes open? He answered, man called Jesus. So I went and washed. And they said, where is he? Their desire was evil. I trust your desire today will be born of faith. Where is he? I need him. I want him. I don't know how it happened, he said. I can't explain it. I've never read about it in a book because I haven't been able to read. I've never heard anybody talk about it, but he said this I know, that I was blind, but now I see. Friend, that's the message of this book. I'm not here to lead you down some intellectual path to freedom. I'm not here to take you on some theological trip into the nether-nether world. I'm here to tell you it's just like this old blind brother. This I know, I was once blind, but now I can see. This I know, once I was lost, but now I'm found. I was sick, but now I'm well. I was heading the wrong way. But I met Jesus, and he turned my life around. I'll never be the same again. I just met a man. He told me everything I've ever done. And I wanted him as my friend. And I opened my heart to him. And he helped me to see for the first time in my life. I don't care what it is that you've got in your life today. This man came seeing. There was no power in the waters of Siloam, but there was power in his faith. If you don't know whether you're saved or not, you've got pretty poor religion, in my opinion. If some have said you're healed and you don't have any evidence of it. That's not good religion, in my opinion. If a man eats dinner and ten minutes later doesn't know whether he's eaten or not, he's got to be looked upon with a little bit of suspicion. If you walk out of here and ten minutes later nobody can tell you've been to church, there's something wrong with church. Maybe something wrong with me that I didn't get through to you the way I want to get through to you today. Somebody said to Spurgeon once, and I liked his approach, what do you do when people sleep in your church while you're preaching? He said, the usher has strict instruction whenever he sees anybody asleep to quickly move to the pulpit and wake up the preacher. <laughs> and I like that. If you haven't felt something in this service today that will make you move a little bit closer to this blessed Nazarene, then I don't know what's the matter because I feel him here. It's almost as though I could reach out and touch him. He's so close today. This man was born blind, and all of us were. All of us fell under the effects of sin in this world. 
We're diseased. We're infirmed. We're hopelessly lost. And the world says, this is the way out. And this one says, this is the way out. But I like the approach of the blind man. This I know. Once I was blind, but now I see. Well, who was it? His name was Jesus.